0: John Kelly, is that you?
1: Hey, Nick. Great to hear from you, how's
0: it, man. How's it going?
1: You know, it's pretty good. It's, it's been a, a discombobulating week. I, I feel like um, it's never a great thing when your president and his party are at war with the intelligence community and the justice system. But, uh, you know, just another Thursday. Well, I
0: have an amazing guest this week that actually helps explain all of this stuff. It helps explain the unexplainable. Um David K. Johnston came out to uh, to Inside the Hive and he sat and talked to me about his new book uh, It's Even Worse Than You Think um, What the Trump Administration is Doing to America um, I actually used to work with Johnston in the New York Times He uh, he was an economics reporter and won a Pulitzer for some tax stories he's done. And um, he's been writing about Trump for um, decades. Um, and, uh, and I think and really he was also the uh, the
1: reporter who had um, one year of Trump's tax records, uh, if I'm correct, right, on Rachel Maddow? Uh, yeah, and he, he – well, he's also – he wrote a book um,
0: before this book, uh, um, which was a, a detail of um, – of the making of Donald Trump, uh, which kind of laid out how he got to where he got to. And that came out in 2016. And, and this is his two years later, how, uh, we're all just completely fucked. Sorry to use that language. So, so, so soon into the show, but you know, that's pretty much, uh, pretty much, but there was a silver lining. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's get to the show And we can come back after, and we can talk about it, and I want to hear what your thoughts are if you think this silver lining that that David lays out is actually a reality.
1: Well, I can't wait to hear it. I I thought things were already really bad. I'm always psyched to know (laughs) that they're worse than I thought, and I'm even more psyched to find out that they're even worse with a silver lining. So I can't wait to hear it, Nick. Let's roll the tape.
0: David K. Johnston, thank you so much for taking the time to
2: stop by today. Well, Nick, thank you for having me on. Are you uh, enjoying your time in L.A.? You know, I moved away 30 years ago, and now I'm back. I see the city has changed a lot. It's all because of Trump's climate change. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) All right, let's jump right into it. You have a new
0: book out called It's Even Worse Than You Think, What the Trump Administration is Doing to America, which is on the New York Times bestseller list. Um, And uh, I read it the last couple of days. It's fascinating and terrifying. Um, one of the things, let's just start right away. Um, you know, we've had a lot of, we've had 45 presidents, of course. Uh, we've had some pretty bad presidents. Do you think, even going all the way back to, you know, some of the, the worst in, in history, do you think Trump will be remembered as the worst president in U.S. history for a for time to come?
2: Yeah, I, I think generally we don't get a good view of presidents till 40 or 50 years after they're gone. but. Um, history is not going to look at all kindly on Donald Trump for one simple reason. Every previous president, good ones, bad ones, middling ones, murderous racist ones like Andrew Jackson, whose picture hangs in the Oval Office now, all did what they thought in their time was what would make America better. Donald Trump's presidency is about one thing. Donald. Period. Full stop. So, I have so many questions um, uh, and about
0: that statement. So that's one of the things you say in the very beginning of the book is that um, it's all about Donald. How is it that someone like him can appeal to half of the American population? The, well, the, 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 it's so clear that it's all about Donald.
2: Well, there are two elements to Donald's campaign. First of all, Donald appealed to the somewhere between 25 and 33%, a quarter to a third of Americans, who hate the civil rights movement. You know, they do not want to sit next to a Latino on an airplane, they don't want an Asian in the cockpit, and God forbid they don't want to have a black woman boss. And he's appealed to those people, and they're with him. Uh, But secondly, the bottom 90% of Americans have real grievances. I spent the last 25 years being their champion. I wrote a trilogy of best-selling books, Perfectly Legal, Free Lunch, and The Fine Print, Documenting these government policies and rules that nobody knew about until I wrote about them that siphon money out of your pocket and turn it over to Warren Buffett and General Electric and oil pipeline companies and Donald Trump. And I know that Donald watched me on television because he talked to people and said that he had seen me talking about the books and he distilled out of my books a message the message I presented. And I said in 2012, anybody who runs for president on these three books will get elected. And that was in Washington, the elites are taking care of themselves and they're doing you in. And by the way, the bottom 90% of Americans in 2012 had a smaller income on average than in 1967. Wow. And so... Donald, you know, reached out to the real grievances of people who've seen their incomes fall, their job security fall, their pensions go away, their health care go to hell, and and but he tapped d- into their legitimate anger. But okay, so it wasn't an it wasn't even an open secret of what
0: what was happening in this country. Why is it that he was able to to do that? I mean, why is it that someone so clearly um, uh, in it for himself and nothing else was able to tap into the thing that, that quite frankly,
2: Democrats knew about. Sure. Uh, well, here, what would Donald do at his campaign rallies? I love you. I love you. Most important, one of the most important things he said. He kept saying, "I love you." Um, to the people at the rallies. To the, the people rallies. at the rallies. Absolutely. And I love the this and I love the that. Um, he would tell them, "I am your champion." Uh, I alone can take care of this for you. And he kept it to simple slogans. And Hillary Clinton, who would have been, yeah, she would have been an okay president. She would have been the children's president and Vladimir Putin's worst nightmare. But she wouldn't have been any great shakes, even though she was, without a doubt, the most qualified person ever to run for president. What was her campaign? Well, to people like me, I understand her policy positions, and I get the I'm with her business. But to many, many, many Americans... It was blah, 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 completely, blah, 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 blah. Completely, blah. yeah. And she didn't change tactics. You know, Donna Brazil's book, which was written for her by my friend uh, uh, Donnell Morton, who I trained in being a journalist, does a great job of showing the incredible hubris and arrogance of Hillary Clinton who would not listen when people said, hey, this guy's running an unconventional campaign. You need to respond to that. Mm. And she just wouldn't listen. Okay,
0: so one of the things I've heard stories about Fred Trump, Donald Trump's dad, about him being this awful, awful person. Um, he, uh, he was. He, uh, uh, maybe you have a, some anecdotes you want to share. Uh, but uh, this is a perfect, you know, thing that I'd notice in your book. You, you write that Trump is desperate for others to fill the void inside himself. Um, he has a sad need for attention and preferably public adoration. What is it? I mean. I know people, we all know people, who have these kind of narcissistic tendencies and so on and so forth. You know, what is it that happened to Trump, to Donald Trump, that made him the awful person that he is today? Did you...
2: Well, there are a bunch of things that happened to him. I mean, there was a period when his mother was not doing well and didn't get a lot of attention. He had an older brother who just broke under the uh, force of his father. Uh, and Donald saw an opportunity then to become dad's favored son. But he was constantly getting in trouble. He uh, was known to throw rocks at babies in um, uh, Wait, play pens you, when he was a little
0: boy. throw rocks at babies, like in, real
2: babies? Yeah, in play pens. He, he called it uh, Make the Baby Cry. And he was constantly getting into trouble. He bragged in one of his books that he slugged his second grade teacher because the teacher didn't know anything about music. Now, I, that story could well be made up, but that he claims that tells you a lot about his nature. And when he was... Uh, the summer he turned 13, his father sent him to a New York military academy. Uh, Trump himself has said, and others have written about it, that they humiliated and hazed the younger boys there. And Donald displays uh, all of the attributes of someone who was, as a boy just entering puberty, you know, humiliated by older boys. And I think that explains a lot of this. And then along comes, you know, his father telling him, you know, that you're special, because he wants to expand his empire. And he learns his father's techniques of lying and denying and uh, using women.
0: So isn't it true that also his father and him um, had ties to, you know, the Gambino family, oh, and drug absolutely. traffickers, Do- and
2: well, first of all, Donald Trump's grandfather Friedrich was a draft dodger from Germany. He came to America, lied to get a citizenship and made his fortune running whorehouses. And the family doesn't dispute those facts that Gwenda Blair put in her book, The Trumps, uh, maybe 10 or 15 years ago. Um, Donald Trump's father, Fred, had a business partner named Willie Tomasello, who's identified in law enforcement reports and public reports uh, as an associate of the Gambino and Genovese crime families. Uh, Donald has spent his entire adult life deeply entangled with Italian mobsters, Russian mobsters, and I mean that broadly—you know, including people from Kazakhstan and Ukraine, et cetera—Russian-speaking uh, mobsters, uh, assorted swindlers and crooks. Uh, you know, he he uh, used uh, undocumented, illegal workers, uh, to use his phrase, illegal immigrants, to tear down Bonwit Teller so he could build Trump Tower, and then refused to pay them their four-dollar-an-hour wages and fought for 18 years not to pay these people their measly wage. Just because he's a sociopath? Because Because his whole life is you don't pay your bills. I mean, right now as president of the United States, he has filed papers challenging the property tax assessment of his golf course in Jupiter, Florida near Mar-a-Lago. He's president and he's still doing this nonsense. He, many, many, it's easy to find people in New York City who will tell you that Donald hired him to do work, They did it. They showed up. He took the work, and then he refused to pay for it. He would say, sue me. And I tell him, uh, it's even worse than you think, about one guy down in Florida who thought Trump might cheat him. So he very carefully goes to the work site and says, I need the exact correct legal name of who is liable for this bill. And he doesn't get paid, about $35,000 out of his, I think, $200,000 contract. Um, He sues he's determined he's going to get paid. The first thing Trump's lawyers do is say, you sued the wrong entity. And luckily for him, a judge said, well, since the man went to your office and asked, you can't argue that it's the wrong entity since you gave him the wrong name. (laughs) And it took a number of years for this guy. And it wasn't until after Donald Trump became president and a court issued an appeals court ruling that you owe this money and you have to pay it. And that came, by the way, after Donald Trump's lawyer said, well, to the judge, why aren't you paying this? The judge asked. It's a contract; you have to pay it. Yeah. Mr. Trump feels he has paid enough, and that's Donald's attitude. He, Mr. He, Trump
0: he, feels he's paid enough.
2: Yeah, I mean, imagine if your if your employer says to you, "Well, listen, uh, we've decided that uh, we're only going to pay you for three and a half days this week." You know, <laughs> you have remedies about
0: this. Uh, yeah, I would. Uh, I wouldn't be working for that employer for long. Yeah. All right. So, what are the um, what are the, the implications of all of this? You know, you. Uh, you've talked about how um, we all know he's completely fucked up as an individual. Um, uh, We've
2: had other presidents that are kind of screwed up, but we'll probably all, not as think, badly as him.
0: I think anyone who who wants that level of attention and responsibility, you have to have, you have to be a little messed up. Yep. I think. Um, uh, but so putting that aside, so we we're currently in a situation where um, uh, the you know. Isn't it nearly four thousand of the um, positions uh, in the within the White House, including? Oh know, yeah, the uh, president.
2: The president gets to the point about four thousand people in the government, of whom uh, you know it's about seven hundred that are really important. And he's actually over time been falling further behind Obama and George W. Bush in making appointments. But we still don't have like a lot of pe- a lot of ambassadors right. in place. Absolutely. Correct. So what are the implications of that? Well, it means that in the case of ambassadors, and and this is the reason, Nick, I did this book, because there's really good coverage of the the palace intrigue in the White House and the um, uh, tweets and the crazy racist comments. But what's happening to our government and how it affects you is what's not being covered. So um, in the area of, you mentioned ambassadors, Trump is all the time raging about terrorists. Well, we're going to have an ambassador in Saudi Arabia or Egypt, or Libya, or Jordan, sort of listening posts where you'd want to have an ambassador if you actually care about this issue. Um, We don't have an ambassador in Australia. The most loyal lapdog ally ally America has in the world is and for years has been Australia. Uh, Donald came in and killed the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and I was an early prominent critic of it, that it needed to be fixed because it gave more power to corporations, encouraged monopolies, and reduced human rights. But Trump didn't come in to fix it. He just killed it. So So, 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 so something very important happened, if I can just finish the thought. Um, People listening to this, ask yourself, have you ever heard of the RCEP? No. You haven't. It's the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership that China put together. Mm -hmm. And it's 15 Pacific Rim countries plus India, so 16 countries. And the Chinese emissaries are going to these countries and others that may join later and saying... You know, you need to pivot away from Washington and towards Beijing. Look at America. America's in decline. Look how it's falling apart. Look at who's in their White House. If you want a prosperous future, you need to pivot to us. You need to recognize that China's the country thinking about the future with solid leaders who are thoughtful and know what they're doing. And when I was in Australia lecturing on tax policy and Trump back in the, the fall, everybody I talked to, didn't matter who they were, you know, professors, uh, the maid who was uh, taking care of my hotel room—they were all like, "What's happened to America? What? What is? Yeah. Should we be afraid?" And and they all said, "Yeah, Australia is beginning to tilt toward China because it has no other choice."
0: Well, no one has any other choice. All of these countries that have relied on America to be kind of even a protector in some respects—they know that that's probably not going to happen under this yeah. administration. Yeah. So one of the things, okay, so so you for a long time um, covered economics and tax reform and all these other issues and uh, and won a Pulitzer for um, uncovering uh, some really bad things that corporations did, but one of the things that I've noted in your reporting that I've seen in your reporting over the years is that you kind of point out that there are that there are th- there are rules and things that happen and then we kind of don't see how they affect us. For many, many years, sometimes, sometimes decades, you right. know, there are uh, things that Nixon did that are probably affecting this country today. If you had to kind of guess just looking around at what Trump has done, the deregulation, the EPA, right. all these things right. where do you think, you know, in 10, 20 years from now, we're going to find ourselves?
2: Oh, yeah, I don't think that's difficult to do at all. First of all, there is no such thing as deregulation. I used to teach regulatory law to third-year law students and graduate business students. And I'm not a lawyer. There is only new regulation. You take the existing regulation, and everything is regulated. Baseball regulates how many stitches are on the ball. And as we're now seeing with uh, college campuses and things, dating is regulated effectively. Uh, So uh, the areas where Trump is doing horrible damage that will last, well... Let's take his love of coal. Clean coal. We love clean coal. When you burn coal to create electricity, you leave behind toxic residue. It's got heavy metals in it like cadmium and mercury. Historically, electric power plants poured water on this stuff, turned into a toxic sludge, floated downhill, and then it went into a pond, usually a pond next to a river where we get drinking water. And we've had several big cases in recent years of the dikes breaking and then ruining the water and killing all the fish. Uh, the Trump administration has encouraged companies to continue to do that instead of drying the stuff out and putting it in a place where it won't be so damaging. Well, that means that, you know, your child is not going to get sick today. I'm not going to get sick today. But your children and your grandchildren are more likely to develop asthma and heart disease and especially cancer as these chemicals are released instead of penned.
0: But what's... This is... Okay, so this is the thing I don't understand. There are currently in the United States around 50,000 coal jobs. If you factor in oil and gas, it's around 175,000. If you look at the solar industry, just the solar industry, it's, there's around 400,000 jobs. What on earth? I it literally cannot comprehend why they give so much of a shit about 50,000 workers in the coal industry when— there are so many other opportunities that those workers could
2: go into. Because not many people know the statistics you just cited. And Donald Trump and before him Fox News created this idea of a war on coal, just like you know the war on Christmas, even though Trump Organization Christmas card said, happy holidays. And by arguing that I'm there to protect you, guy, he sends a message to people in all sorts of blue-collar occupations. Truck drivers. Uh, factory worker, that I'm with you. And that's why he's doing it. And, you know, more people work at Arby's, a third-rate fast food chain, than work in coal mining. Coal is not going to come back. Natural gas is where the business is going to go. And yet Trump keeps hitting this thing because it sends a hidden text, you know, between-the-lines comment, to many, many people who've seen their economic fortunes decline in the last 40 years. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton.
0: So John, I live an incredibly busy life as I know you do. I have two kids, uh, wife, dog, mortgage, job, where I have to give you columns and things like that every week. But one of the things that's really kind of happened as a result of that is I don't have time to cook all the time. Um, And I have discovered a website uh, that has kind of changed it for me. Um, it's called Freshly. Have you Freshly? Ever heard of it? Is that fr- Freshly? I love Freshly. Yeah. Freshly is amazing, right? Yeah. So they have these incredible meals, comfort meals, as they call them, um, that are delivered to your house. Uh, you don't have to chop up vegetables and do and all those things. And these are all natural to...
1: gluten-free meals, right? I mean, it's more than just a convenient meal. It's a delicious, fulfilling, sustaining meal. Yeah, it's fantastic. They have this buffalo chicken,
0: chicken Lovely. parm. They have all these veggie mm. options. It's fantastic, and I've been using it all the time, and we we love it. It's uh,
1: you, you look know, great too, by around. the way, Nick. I, I I saw you a couple weeks ago. I, I was thinking, what is it about you that looks so good? It, it must be your diet that's changed. Well, it's true. No, it's
0: true. I if you you know if, if I don't if, when I wasn't using freshly, I was ordering pizza every night. It's because it's you know it's crazy. You know what kids are like, um, and so um, this is what I've been doing, and. Um, you know, every meal comes with uh, all these like detailed, easy-to-read ingredients. It's it's really fantastic. I uh, I would urge anyone to give it a shot. In fact, uh, Freshly is offering twenty-five dollars off your first order for six chef-cooked dinners plus Whoa. free shipping. By going to Freshly.com slash hive. Once again, that's Freshly.com slash hive.
1: Sorry, what was that one more time?
0: Freshly, F-R-E-S-H-L-Y.com slash hive. That's H-I-V-E. And you get $25 off your first order.
1: I urge everyone to give it a shot. I got to say, Nick, I'm a real meal delivery service aficionado. I've seen them all. and, uh, And Freshly, that's a fantastic service. It is great.
0: So can't he, can't the message be, or is this just, am I being too logical? Can't the message be, hey, we understand coal's going away, but I'm going to help you find a new job in the new industry that's replacing it. Blah, 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 blah. That's
2: how that comes across. (laughs) I mean, this is, Donald Trump is P.T. Barnum. Come see the Fiji mermaid and the incredible two-headed woman. And it, it, it is whatever will sell to get what he wants. And he's, Donald's very good at coming up with these lines and that appeal to people and that resonate and that are plain and simple, and that's what the, the coal stuff is about, and you know he doesn't care about facts. One of the chapters in my book is about when he went out to the most expensive ship ever built, the $13 billion Gerald R. Ford nuclear aircraft carrier, and he finds out that they're now going to launch aircraft off the aircraft carrier using the same electromechanical propulsion that's at the modern roller coasters. Uh, It's what makes maglev trains like the one in Shanghai work. And Trump, uh, as I quote him in the book, clearly did not understand what he was told. And he says, well, you're not going to use it. I mean, digital. He calls it digital. It's Mm. not digital. It's it's so complicated. Only Einstein, only Einstein, you know, can do digital. And and you're going back to steam. You're going to use goddamn steam well, getting rid of steam and using electrical systems will save, over the life of the ship, a fortune. I think it's over a billion dollars in operating costs. It will allow us to fling much heavier planes into the air, apart from the whole issue of our, why do we want to build aircraft carriers in the first place because they're vulnerable to nuclear mm-hmm. missile attacks. Yeah. But Donald doesn't know anything about science. He doesn't know anything about anything. He, doesn't know about, he, he is appallingly ignorant on unbelievable numbers of subjects. During the campaign he was asked during the Fox News debate in December of 2015 by Hugh Hewitt, very smart right-wing radio talk show host, uh, Mr. Trump, what would you do about our nuclear triad in the event that you had to make uh, decisions to cut spending? What would your priority be? Oh, nuclear, nuclear, it's so big. You know, my, my Uncle John, famous scientist at MIT, taught me everything you need to know about nuclear, everything, It's it, and, and it's so big. And He says, yes, but what would you do if you had to choose in the triad on reducing spending? Oh, nuclear is, it's so massive, it's just so big. Senator Rubio, same question. And Rubio, not exactly a heavyweight, Mm. says, well, for those who don't know, the nuclear triad is the capacity of the military of the United States to deliver nuclear weapons from land-based missiles, sea-based missiles, or airplanes. Well, it turned out, and I reported in my uh, in my, book, my previous book, that Donald had been asked this question four months earlier by Hugh Hewitt on his radio show. He didn't go learn. He didn't ask. He's not the least bit embarrassed that he doesn't know this. And when when the Fox News debate appeared, I turned to my wife, uh, who's the CEO of a large endowment, and said, this should be the lead of the story tomorrow. Everybody's lead story should be Donald Trump doesn't know anything about nuclear uh, weapons and nuclear strategy. And I said, you watch, it won't get mentioned at all. And she said, why? I said, because the pol- politics reporters who cover the horse race, they don't know any more than Donald Trump does about it. So that's a
0: question that I was going to get to with all this. So the it seems to me that one of the biggest problems in this country is not necessarily the charlatan politicians, or the Mitch McConnells, or even the Donald Trumps, that those people have been around forever. But that the media world that we live in has become so volatile and so incorrect. And you have Sean Hannity, you have, you know, entire – you have you know Infowars and Alex Jones and just you know calling uh, uh, tragedies black flags. You have all of these things that are going on. You have opinion writers on every side of the aisle, in the middle of the aisle, under the aisle. You name it, spouting off about why this this is good and this is bad. And all it is doing, it seems to me, you have real reporting taking place. You know, the New York Times, the Washington Post, all these places. But at the same time, you have this other stuff going on. And it seems to me that all it is doing is it's essentially trying to put out a fire
2: with jet fuel. Right. Well, there, there's a real fundamental problem here. Far, Farhad Manju, who's now columns columnist of the New York Times and back then was at Slate, I believe, wrote a book some years ago called True Enough. Mm-hmm. And it's about exactly this, that we, you know, sort of believe things. And he told about social science research where... If you believe something and then the facts show it's completely wrong and you're rationally, calmly, without insulting you, shown that you know, that's not true, a significant number of people double down. Of course that's true. Yep. They will yep. not acknowledge that they've been had. That's why con artists like Donald are successful. Because many people who get taken, they can't bring themselves to say, oh my God, I just lost my life savings because I got tricked. Because that makes them feel that they're stupid and foolish and have made an error. The, one of the big problems in journalism here is there's been a 40-year attack, well-financed attack from the right on honest journalism. started with Reed Irvine and accuracy in media, and it's just grown from, from that time till now. The Democrats foolishly voted to get rid of the equal time and fairness doctrines so that uh, it used to be the television station had to give all sides to an argument. Yeah. And I'm the only journalist in American history who got a broadcast chain forced out of business for news manipulations and blackouts the things that that broadcaster did today they would not lose their license for Hmm. um and so then you have the rise of these cable shows yeah uh and you have people like uh, i used to be on fox you Uh, used to be on fox yeah sure and and uh
0: did you know what you were on? Did you, yeah, of Did course someone I tell on, you? Or? Because I,
2: I, I talked, I mean, my, listen, I believe in free speech. I talk to everybody. I talked to people on the right, the left, all over the place. Mm. And I would correct hosts when they had uh, factual errors. Hence, you
0: know? you're not on Fox anymore. And, <laughs>
2: and one day I said to Lou Dobbs when he was on Vox Business, uh, as I'd said to him on CNN many times, and Lou and I would mix it up, I said, you know, Lou, if if those were the facts, I'd be as upset as you are. But... And, man, I was off the air in less than a minute from that, and I was not was invited it. back. So you have mendaciousness that is government-approved. I'm not particularly eager to have the government do more to intrude, but getting rid of these other doctrines has been a real problem. And, look, there are a lot of people who profit off nonsense. I mean, look at Alex Jones interdimensional beings have taken over the elites of our country. And Donald Trump goes on his show and talks about how you can rely on info wars.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, but, it's, it, but it it gave – like things like Alex Jones gave Donald Trump the facts that were not facts that he could then use right. as – they could make him up. Alternate facts. Yeah. So do you think that there – do you think that we – and I've asked guests on this show before this question, but do you think that if you kind of fast forward over the next, you know – few presidential election cycles, um, a decade or so,
2: that we're going to fix the media problem? Um, Can it be fixed? Well, the underlying media problem is that we're the only major country that doesn't teach media literacy. I've had better conversations about economics, culture, and politics with um, a roadside restaurant waiter, waiter in rural austria uh, a bartender in Singapore, you know... Uh, um,
0: How, well, why is it that they're able to have because those Because their
2: education systems are different than ours. We designed ours in the late 19th century to produce drones, to work in the rising industrial economy of America, and to perform and not ask questions. And so the majority of Americans have an education that, you know, you do what you're told. You're powerless. Lots of Americans, they tell me, at the time, you can't do anything about it. I don't need power. And I said, what are you talking about? You have all the power. And but the larger problem I think is not the issue of is the media doing its job or not it's our voters I believe the most important election in this country since the Civil War will be this November more important than 19, more, more important than 1932 um, and we will see by historic standards the Republicans should lose control of both the house and the Senate um, there should be a, a significant turnover we have seen so far I think it's 35, 36, somewhere in that range, Republicans announced not running again because they've looked at the numbers from the Trump election and figured they're vulnerable. But that may not happen. The Democrats haven't paid attention to their knitting for years. The Republicans have been busily developing bench strength, getting laws passed that make a minority party in control of a bunch of the states and the House and the Senate and the White House. Through all the gerrymandering? Well, gerrymandering is just part of it. Voter registration laws, a law in Michigan that says that at the end of uh, election day, if the two ballot watchers, the D and the R, come up with different numbers, one says 398, one says 399 people voted, you throw out all the ballots. And guess where all the ballots got thrown out? Almost all of them in Michigan uh, in 2016, in Wayne County, which is Detroit, and Saginaw County, which is Flint. I mean, what a perfect system. You just deliberately give a wrong number, and you can throw out the other party's ballots if you think they're going to be a significant force. They've done lots and lots of things to rig the voting system, not in terms of just the vote count so much as who can vote and who turns out. And the Democrats not only haven't done this basic work of organizing, even though supposedly the People's Party and should know how to organize but on top of that, what's their economic message? Well, that's the. the I, mean, I think that one of the biggest failures of the Democratic Party is they, they can't figure out how to brand what their message is. Right. So the Republicans have a very clear economic message. So they don't say it in th- these words, but their message is, the rich don't have nearly enough, and we need to get them more, and then they'll create jobs. And the way they're going to get them the jobs is they're going to take from the children, the disabled, um, the poor, and the elderly who can't fight back. Tell me, what is the economic message of the Democrats? What are, what, how are they going to make life better for you? They cannot seem to articulate this. They're Republican light. And I mean that in the offensive sense of light beer, L-I-T-E. They're just Republican light. This is Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. So, hey, John,
0: a couple of weeks ago, I uh, told you to sign up for the Goop newsletter and to check out goop.com slash hive. Um, did you do it? Did you follow through?
1: Nick don't I do everything you tell me to do? It's true. It is true. Well, I follow. I followed up on your advice, and um, I'm happy to say I'm a Goop guy now. And and we're we're a Goop family. You know, Goop uh, for all our listeners who, who are uninitiated. It's a it's a lifestyle brand rooted in content that spans travel, food, beauty, style, work, wellness. You know, and uh, in addition to the newsletters which come twice a week, they other hands in several products. um... There's so the I, Goop
0: the, I've, I've been, I, my wife uses some. Uh, did you, I, you said you were going to get some for your wife. Did you do that? Did you follow through on that one too?
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, um, Goop by Juice Beauty, which is a high performance skincare line made from organic ingredients. Rebecca loves that stuff. Um, there's a vitamin program. She's super healthy, as you know, and pregnant. So vitamins are really important and key to, to her her daily initiatives. Um uh, and you know, the, uh, I mean, I think Goop is really famous for their um, line of entirely natural uh, fragrances, and of course, uh, the fashion label, um, which is uh, you know made from uh, the work in some of Italy's finest mills. And um, it, it, it launches in monthly limited edition installments. So uh, I'm happy to say, Nick, I followed your advice, and my life has not been the same ever since. Well, for listeners that want to check this stuff out, and incidentally, my wife actually
0: went on a Goop shopping spree after the show. Uh, There was packages showing up for weeks at our house. Um, But for listeners that want to check this out uh, and see some of the things that Goop has to offer, you can go to goop.com slash hive. Once again, that's goop.com slash hive. You can see the products they offer. You can check out some of the drinks, the, the moisturizers and so on and so forth. And there are lots of things to read for both men and women, travel, food, beauty, style, work, you name it. Uh, once again, goop.com slash hive. So speaking of the rich, so there was a report last year, a year ago, that from Oxfam that said that eight of the richest people in the world had the same amount of wealth as the bottom 3.6 billion. A report this year that just came out, I believe about two weeks ago, pointed out that, that same from same from Oxfam, same side of, side of research, pointed out that it's now the three richest people in the world who have the same amount of wealth as the and bottom 3.6 billion. And just a $3. few $3. years Six. ago, it was the 20 or 25. Yeah. It's been coming down. Soon, it'll just be one person. Um, how, how does this, you know, you've you won a Pulitzer for your reporting on the tax codes and, and the, you know, money. Well, inequality. years Documenting inequality. How does this, this does
2: not seem sustainable. Um, how does it play out? Well, I mean. Or am if, I if, being if, delusional? No, no, you're not being delusional. If you look back at history, I'll tell you exactly how it plays out. It plays out like what happened uh, in France at the end of the. Uh, 18th century. But you think there's going to be some sort of revolution here? Well, maybe not here, but, you know, the the fundamental lesson is this. Uh, At some point, uh, people who see that the future is worse than the present, they respond. And in America so far, you know, we're we're incredibly better off, despite the massive poverty in this country, than we were 50, 60 years ago. Uh, even despite the 90% having slightly lower incomes. Um, and so th- this country is, I don't think, primed at the moment, but the right demagogue could come along if we get down the, con- the road we're on now for a while and absolutely spark uh, violence. And, and I've said, if we ever have a revolution in this country, it will come from the right. Because of how many of us have guns, it will be the bloodiest thing the world has ever seen. Pol Pot and Stalin will be reduced to asterisks in history and Mao. Do you believe that that could happen in the United States? It, it is a possibility. It's not a likelihood, but it is absolutely a possibility, just the way Donald Trump's becoming president, I said the day he announced in 2015, was a possibility. And so that possibility,
0: there's a, also, is there a possibility that, that we figure this out and fix it?
2: Well, to figure it out and fix it, you have to address a fundamental problem we created in this country after Watergate. Watergate showed how dirty money can really mess up our government and awful, horrible things happen. So we passed all these campaign reform laws, finance laws. Um, I was covering Michigan at the time in the state capitol and covered that stuff daily and, and got Michigan passed the toughest campaign finance reform law in the country. It backfired. All of these laws backfired. Why? They have enormously concentrated power in the hands of what I call the political donor class, the roughly one in 500 households in America who are the real source of campaign money. And if you were to run for Congress, where you live on the west side of L.A., Nick, you might say to yourself, well, I'm going to do all these good things for the people. The reality is you'd be out after one term if you don't kowtow to the powers, people who have money, because they'll just support a different candidate who will do their, their bidding. And I I have a Democratic state senator in New York tell me exactly that. He said, look, for 10 years, every day I woke up and while I was shaving thought about what am I doing for my 10 biggest donors today because if I don't at least show them I'm trying to do something, even if it's something they're never going to get or I don't think they should get, they will run somebody against me and I never once thought about the average constituent in my district.
0: Okay, so I don't find that in the slightest bit surprising, but those donors are giving money that are being used for traditional advertising or even social media advertising and things like that. One of the things that we have seen happen with the rise of tech and social media and so on and so forth is that the ability to reach a mass audience with a little amount of money, which is something that Trump did, um, is, is, has, has changed yes, absolutely. dramatically. Is there a world in which we could see someone running... In these districts, whether it's in the West Side of LA or even for president, where they don't have to kowtow to those constituents that are the top one percent.
2: Well, if you, you know, Bernie Sanders, who I don't think would have been a good president, why don't you think? Because he, he doesn't have any administrative skill, and he's terribly abusive to his staff. And you know, I've said his wife it seems quite clear has committed a felony bank fraud. Um, uh, but he said there all the things—I mean, I agree with a lot of his platform. It's just he's not someone I, any, I see as uh, capable of carrying anything out and being an administrator. Um, but look what he did. He got bigger crowds than Donald Trump. He engaged lots of people. And if you can connect with enough people, yeah, I think you can get around that. But so many people regard Washington as, as a distant entity. You know, newspapers and TV always talk about the government— in my book, It's Even Worse Than You Think, and at the nonprofit public service news service I run, D.C. Report, we talk about our government, our constitution. We own it. We should act like owners. And one of the things I would really like to work on changing in America is getting away from this notion that you don't have any power. It's a democracy. You've but got all the you, power. But, but how do you have power? So Okay,
0: so how – I don't feel like I own the government. I feel like I, feel like I see Scott Pruitt – you know, reversing all these EPA regulations that make me sick to my
2: stomach, and I don't feel like there's a single thing I can do. What- yeah, that's exactly I think people feel powerless. But, so what can you do? The Your power is in the numbers. The vote. The power is in the numbers. And if people turn out... Look what happened the day after Trump's inauguration. The largest... Demonstrations in the history of America, far bigger than any anti-war demonstration, uh, any other kind of demonstration. This was an astonishing, six million, mostly women, but some men, all around the country. And we had, despite no top-down organization, really big turnout a year later. Um, people need to, if people okay, understand but- that they have power and they they act on it, and we have leaders who they respect and they feel will carry out their mission, you can do what Trump did.
0: Okay, but 6 million people showed up the day after Trump was inaugurated and protested, which was amazing. The day before Trump won for president, 91 million people chose not to not to vote. Yep. So how can you—and those 91 million people, I'm sure— some of them couldn't get there because of work. And, and a some lot of them, them just didn't care. A lot of, most of them didn't care or didn't think that their vote was going to yeah. have some sort of impact. It
2: was astonishing when Obama ran the second time and he got far fewer votes from black Americans. There yeah. were political scientists who went out and asked. And they interviewed all sorts of people who said, well, he won. Why would I vote again? I mean, that's really naive view of politics. Uh, well, we could certainly have mandatory voting like they have in Australia. We could make voting easier. Why do we vote on Tuesdays? Because workers can't get to the polls. Let's have weekend voting. Let's have mail-in voting. Um, that will make a big change. And by the way, why don't we also have night court and weekend court so that people uh, uh, who are accused of crimes but are legally innocent don't have to lose their jobs to defend themselves?
0: Oh, this is so depressing.
2: All right, let's... Um, I want, be hopeful. No, be, be hopeful. I, keep, I, keep, I, I want to be hopeful. I just I just think... I just. We choose our fate. The whole idea of the United States of America is we choose our fate. And if we decide to outsource this, then the Koch brothers and their friends will decide our future. So you're saying that
0: the the way to to push back on this, if you don't agree with Scott Pruitt or Betsy DeVos or something like that, is that you have to... Do whatever it is that you can to ensure that in 2018- 2018,
2: get other people to register to vote. Take off election day. Drive people to the polls. Um, uh, when people who disagree with you about things listen to them, you know, in many cases you'll find out what they're really upset about. It isn't so much they love Donald Trump; it's that they're living in economic terror. They have no savings. They're afraid their life will fall apart. And be sympathetic to them and win them over, you know. Don't don't tell them, well, you're stupid or you're, you know. Don't act like you're on Twitter. Yeah. Win them over and say, we can create a better America. You know, we choose. We can do better. We're better than this. But, you know, I get criticized by people who say, well, you're blaming the people. Yeah. Because... That's the system. The people <laughs> decide. If you decide not to vote, I agree then you. you're letting other people decide. I, 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 my biggest criticism is not the
0: people—is is not the 63 million people that voted for Trump. It's the 91 million who didn't vote. Yep.
2: I agree. hundred um, percent.
0: All right. Let's go through some of the, the, you know, the folks that Trump has chosen to put into office and, uh, and get your take on on them and what you think the—you the, uh, know, we'll play a little game of, of how this is going to play out in the future— um, Let's just start with a, let's start with Pruitt, who is literally probably one of my least favorite people on the planet uh, these days. He has rolled back um, so many regulations. He has, you know, uh, it seems that like every time I see his name, there's something that, that terrifies me. I mean he's done even before he was running the EPA, um, he was doing terrible things with fracking and so on and so forth. W- what's going on with him? Where are we going?
2: So Scott Pruitt is really working to become a senator from Oklahoma, the senator from the fossil fuel industry. He sued the EPA uh, 14 times before he became EPA administrator. As soon as he comes in, they put locks on the doors to where the his offices and those of the people closest to him are. I uh, in my books, I don't write dry public policy, I tell stories. And so I tell the story of Betsy Sutherland, who's a longtime manager at the EPA. And She was used to having former administrators, all the way back to Christy Whitman, the former Republican governor of New Jersey, come by her office and say, hey, can we talk about this problem? Industry's complaining about this or somebody's about that and what do we do with it and learning and figuring out how to have compromises. Scott Pruitt doesn't talk to anybody. Orders are issued by the political termites he's brought with him. You will write us incredibly detailed memos outlining every single weakness in your ability to bring pollution cases in this circumstance, this circumstance, that circumstance. So all of these government officials are then put to work, policy analysts and managers and scientists, writing these extensive books. They get called into a meeting. It's entirely one-sided. Tell us everything you know. And then they leave without any response. And, you know, I can't prove the next step, but the logical thing that happens is those Uh, Documents are then turned over to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and ExxonMobil and, you know, various companies with polluting interests so they can defeat any effort to enforce the law. So he's essentially using the
0: EPA to help the people that the EPA is supposed to be...
2: Absolutely. And, 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 you know, a number of the environmental laws in this country contain the word shall. That is a mandatory word under the law. They're completely ignoring the obligation to faithfully execute the laws. They don't like a law. They're not going to do anything. They reduce the number of inspectors. Well so what is what is Pruitt's goal? Is it I mean become the U.S. Senator from Oklahoma? That's it. Well, I mean he'd like to be president of the United States, I'm sure. But I mean he he, he is he's the guy from the fossil fuel industry and he's made his bed and he's decided this is my future. Does he now does he do you think he feels bad or does he think he questions the things that he does? Or do you think that is it all about money? Like people, what it- people who do things like this believe their stuff, okay? And if they don't, they end up dying young of a heart attack. But, I mean, I've never talked to Scott Pruitt, so I don't know exactly what's in his mind. But he's been consistent all the way along that the fossil fuel industry should be free to do whatever damn thing they want. And if you don't like it, that's too bad. All right. Let's go to somebody Even worse, Betsy DeVos. Betsy DeVos. So I'll say one good thing about Betsy DeVos. Betsy DeVos, born with a platinum spoon in her mouth and married a man with a platinum spoon in his mouth, when she travels on government business, uses her private jet, and doesn't bill taxpayers. Oh, well, isn't that lovely? Isn't that lovely, yes. (laughs) Betsy DeVos has no expertise or experience in education whatsoever, but she's a big champion of religious and corporate education. She was a major factor in the Detroit charter schools, which the data show are worse than the public schools, which is an astonishing, astonishing development. If you go to people in charter school movement, I live in Rochester, New York, we have a lot of charter schools, and you say, well, hey, we're having lunch, let's talk about Detroit charter schools. Can we talk about the weather? (laughs) Nobody in the charter school movement wants to talk about Detroit. So she's faced with this student loan crisis we have. You know, when I went to college, college was free, at least here in California. who does she bring in to address this problem of these predatory for-profit schools ripping off young people with horrible loan terms they don't understand when they sign on the dotted line? Why well, she brings in executives from the companies that did this. This is not the fox guarding the hen house. This is bringing in the fox to redesign the hen house to maximize how well the foxes dine.
0: It seems like this is what everyone in the administration is doing. Though, oh yeah, this is absolutely... They're, they're like, hey, let me bring you into the hen house so you can look around.
2: And And most of this has not been reported in the news, hence the title, It's Even Worse Than You Think. Because even if you pay rigorous attention to the news, it's the palace intrigue and the tweets and the craziness, it's not... What is he doing to our government,
0: and what is that doing to you? And so the, But the palace intrigue and the tweets and the craziness is to deflect from people actually paying attention yes. to this stuff.
2: and it's entertaining. You know, I mean, Michael Wolff, I have the number two book on the New York Times bestseller list the first week it was eligible, and Michael Wolf's is number one. Well, first of all, Michael Wolf confirms what was in my previous book, The Making of Donald Trump, but it's a good read. Yeah, it's but at dramatic. The end of the day, and... But it's dramatic and it's fun, but at the end of the day... It's just interpersonal relationships in the White House. It's not, what does this mean to you? Okay, we'll do, we'll do uh,
0: one more. I'm going to let you pick. John Kelly and Stephen Miller. You get to pick which one. <laughs> oh, let's do Stephen Miller.
2: Stephen Miller, when he gave his uh, The, the queen school, of the xenophobes. Yes, when he, in, he went to high school in Santa Monica, California, and they stopped his speech at the high school graduation because it was so outrageous. He is an acolyte, a mentee, of uh, Richard Spencer, this uh, yeah. monstrous uh, white supremacist in Whitefish, Montana. Um, he writes most of Trump's speeches, and you'll notice his speeches are amazingly inelegant. Mm-hmm. Um, he clearly has a significant influence over Trump because he wants to make America white again, and so does Donald. Uh, and that somebody, I mean, funny, you know, he's one of these rare people where you look at him and you look at his eyes and you go there's something off here oh yeah you know if if you were if if you met this guy in a dark alley and he was any bigger if you were a woman, <laughs> if you were a woman on a date with him, you know, and you were suddenly away from other people, I suspect you'd get very, very uncomfortable with this guy. Why is he the only one that hasn't been kicked out yet?
0: I mean, Bannon oh, because, left. Right. They, you know, Re- Reince Pribus. I mean, they all because he
2: knows how to. He he clearly knows how to get with Donald and be with Donald, and Donald is comfortable with him. Donald eventually turns on everybody. Donald is about Donald. If Donald has to choose in the future between uh, Jared Kushner, his son-in-law, going to jail. Or his presidency ending—that's not a hard choice for Donald Trump, despite the fact that in that case it might seriously damage his relationships with his daughter Ivanka. Does he? Um,
0: uh, does he? You know, one of the things I remember um, in the, the last debate with Hillary Clinton, and um, they were both asked. Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were both asked to say something nice about the other. Yes, one. and she said that he loves his family and that he's, you know. She said he had wonderful kids. Wonderful kids. Um, it, does he, you know, does he care about them, as you know, like a normal a grown adult cares about their children, or, or is it, well, when, more when, of pride of who they are because they represent him.
2: Well, when Donald Trump decided to divorce his first wife Ivana and take up with Marla Maples, who I knew about nine months before her name was public. Uh, What did he do? He began publicly denigrating the mother of his children. And he did it so severely that Ivanka and Don Jr. and Eric have all said or written in books or told in interviews that they would have nothing to do with their father when they were growing up. They were so disgusted by what he did to their mother. Then suddenly you find they're all in his fold. Well, yeah. Do you think any of those three, if they went out in the world, could get a job in corporate America, especially the sons that would pay the kind of money daddy's paying them? He bought their loyalty back with money and positions. And, you know, it's a perfectly reasonable choice to make. You know, Daddy's a better choice than the market.
0: I, I heard a story uh, where, um, uh, you know, somebody was a roommate um, of uh, Don Jr.'s, um, and, uh, and he was going to a baseball game or a football game with Donald and he was waiting for him to pick him up, and he showed up. Donald picked him up this years ago. And um, Don Jr. was wearing a, a jersey for whatever the team was that he you know, was going to see. And uh, Donald slapped him in the face and told him to take off that fucking jersey, yeah. and I'll meet you in the car, and right. put on a suit or something like that. And it's
2: the same kind of reason that he left Marla Maples. He, he has this uh, phobia almost about not being blue-collar, not being from Queens, so it's all about being perceived as—now,
0: do you think that he has found—he feels vindicated now being in the White House, that he has—, he has Oh, conquered... sure. And Donald's
2: on mind. I mean, Donald has said he is genetically superior. Yes. Other members of the family have. He says he's the smartest person in the world. He says he has the world's greatest memory, except when he can't recall. And <laughs> And he claims to be the world's greatest expert on 20 subjects— um and all of it's just a con 20 subjects 20 yeah including tax policy on which i'm a world recognized authority and he doesn't know jack about tax policy Sure, he knows nothing about tax policy and and, well especially because he says he doesn't know accounting and if you don't know accounting that's like saying well i know all about airplanes but i don't know what a wing is uh but don but donald in his own mind believes he should be president he believes that this is absolutely where he should be he thinks he should run the whole world so on the one hand in his own mind of course he should be president and on the other hand weighing on him is the realities of oh my god i have now have these responsibilities and he cannot run away from the people he has to deal with so now is the,
0: that's a uh, you know just winding down the a few last questions here but is there a human part of him is there a part of him that says you know this is, you know, the decisions I make are going to affect other people, or is he just, he is just literally genetically incapable of thinking that way?
2: You're an object to Donald. You're not a person. And one of the things I was always struck by with his executives and people who worked around him, the ones who were competent knew what they were doing, he would get rid of, he would promote yes men and drunks and whatnot. And they would tell stories to me about him. I mean, the, what are some stories? Oh, all, all I mean, uh, give us a good anecdote. It was not what I was thinking about at the moment, so I'm afraid my mind is focused on my book, but I'll tell you a story about what they did once. Yeah. Uh, a bunch of the executives got together and they showed a clip from a Monty Python movie. It's where the king is on a wooden horse and there's a guy hitting two coconuts together, sound like clopping, and somebody says, um, uh, well, how do you know he's the king? He's the only one not covered in shit. And everybody <laughs> in the room erupted in laughter. They, they understood that you know this was nonsense. Donald, um, uh, I wrote in the previous book about how uh, Donald's number one customer, a mobbed up guy who lost a minimum of $14 million at his casinos, Donald was trying to seduce his married daughter. And this mob guy goes to Donald and says, "You know, you do that again, I'm going to take your fucking nuts off. Mm-hmm. Um, his executives warned him not to do things, and he would keep doing it. This is his biggest customer. Wait, so he literally was trying to sleep with the mobster's daughter yeah. who was married. Who does yeah. that, Donald,
0: Donald Trump? Trump.
2: <laughs> Don, I mean, we know that we know now that Donald would sometimes uh, make phone calls to, yep. like, so.
0: Yeah, he would make phone calls to wives, husbands, with the wives in the room, oh. and and try to. Trick the husbands into thinking that they
2: weren't there and talk about sleeping with other women. Right, so he could sleep with the wives. But of course, just remember, after acknowledging the Billy Bush tape, what did Trump later say? It wasn't him. That wasn't my voice. Yeah. Um, all right. So, last couple of questions. Uh, um,
0: one was, uh, did you uh, did you watch the uh, the State of the Union last the night? The replay. I was giving
2: a speech the night it ran.
0: Did you did you did you watch it afterwards? Yes. So I couldn't actually make it through it. I watched about four and a half minutes and, and felt like I was going to vomit. Yeah, so I felt I, like
2: I had to watch it.
0: Uh, well, well, give us some marks here on it. What
2: do you think? Well, it was, I, I, it was banal. It was um, lines probably written by Stephen Miller that you yeah, would no, stop and read very slowly. It was full of unbelievable numbers of factual errors correct, uh, that had been documented by other people. But that's, And we shouldn't just bake that in and say, well, Donald makes stuff up. We should be very concerned about that. There was no real vision of a future. I mean it was this oh, this is america 's day well that 's an empty line you got to tell us exactly what you propose to do. Infrastructure really important matters trump had been this Trump was a great strategist. The first thing he would have done when he came into office was put forth an infrastructure bill because the Democrats would have had to go along with it, yeah, and he didn't yeah and it 's a good indicator of you know how utterly out of his league he is. I mean, Donald is not qualified to serve on the city council of the little town I live in of thirty-six thousand people in suburban Rochester, New York.
0: As the as USA Today recently said, he is not he is not qualified to clean the toilets in President Obama's White House, never mind, sit in the Oval Office. Um, all right, last question. Um, uh, RussiaGate, you know, all of the the things with the DOJ and the FBI and Comey and so on and so forth. Does, how does this end for Trump?
2: Well, the, the, the end of Trump's presidency will not go well no matter what happens, even if he serves two terms. How do you, why do you say well, that? Well, because if he's impeached and convicted and removed, he's going to go around the country fomenting violence and revolution. And why do we know that? Because when he was seeking votes, he pointed people out in the crowd and said, beat him up and I'll yeah. pay your legal bills. Yeah. Uh, he has no loyalty to him. He's not a loyal American. He's a loyal Trumpian to Trump. Uh, if he is voted out by Republicans in the primaries or in the general election, it was a rigged election. We know that because he says Hillary Clinton didn't really win the election. Uh, in terms of what if he's removed because of the Russians? And there was a conspiracy with the Russians. We already know that. It's already in the documents that are out there, the Rob Goldstone memo, you know, as part of Russia's efforts to help. And Donald has been the recipient of all sorts of Russian money for decades in deals that don't make any sense. Here's the constitutional crisis to think about. If Donald Trump is removed by a Democratic Congress, can Pence be allowed to become president if the reason is the Russians? Because that means the Russians got both of them into office. And if you decide then you've got to remove both of them, then the problem is a Democrat becomes president, presumably Nancy Pelosi, and I can already see people in the streets and people on Fox News screaming, Cudetara! Yeah. Um, and whoever is speaker, I believe, would have to say, look, I'm a caretaker, I will not be involved in anything, I'm going to be an administrator, and stay clear of the election. So if they, the outcome is that
0: he loses this next term, uh, in 2020, does he then go around the country and take to the streets? Oh, and... yeah.
2: Oh, no, no. Absolutely. So we're
0: screwed no matter what. Yeah.
2: It, we will get past this in the long run. We'll, we'll endure because he doesn't have the support of military officers to take over the country, much as he would have no compunctions about doing so. But you're saying a coup. Yeah. Yeah. You go read your Roman history on 69 before the Common Era, what happened. The Senate was still there, but Rome became an a, a empire, not a republic. Yeah. And so you can have the institutions in place. And it's sort of what we're seeing now because the checks and balances aren't working. The Electoral College didn't stop his getting office as it should have, and the Republicans refused to do their duty because they think it's in their interest, because they think they can get what they want out of him. We will we'll get through this. You know, in the long run, we should be optimistic. But this is this is the opportunity to see if we can wake up those ninety-one million Americans. Obama's election woke up people on the right and racists especially. And you saw their response in 2010. Well, now we're going to find out if principled people, if whether you're conservative, middle of the road or a liberal or progressive, uh, but you care about your country, whether you're going to act on it. And it's not that much work to register to vote and then actually show up no, to vote. You don't
0: even need to show up. You can do it by mail.
2: In some places, <laughs> not all of them, in some places. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, the book is It's Even Worse Than You Think, What the Trump Administration is Doing to America. Um, It's a fascinating read. Uh, David K. Johnson, thank you so much for stopping by today.
2: Nick, thank you. This is Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton.
0: All right, John, what do you think? Do you think that uh, if we can somehow convince a percentage of those 91 million voters who just couldn't be bothered to go to the polls for whatever reason or couldn't make it because they were at work or whatever it was or they were sick that day or their puppy cut their paw. Do you
1: think that we can, if we can somehow convince those people to go, that we can change this maybe? Well, let me ask you, I want to turn this around to you because this really is a sort of Nick built-in question. When will we get to the point as a society, you know, we're already uh, saturated with smartphones. um, When will we get to the point when we can vote from our phones? Which I think is going to be, you know, it's only at that moment that we're really going to get the sort of universal suffrage that um, that we all hope for. Is there some sort of like State Department software that can do that with 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 real veracity, so that like, you know, my dad doesn't vote like 14 times by mistake because he keeps hitting enter? Well, I think
0: the problem is is it's not necessarily the the vote 14 times by mistake because you know, I mean, as David said in the podcast, you know. Part of the reason we have to vote on Tuesdays is is to deter people from voting. You know, if it was on a weekend, more people would be able to go. If it was if it was a simplified process, there's all these things that have mostly been implemented by the Republicans that have have designed to deter people from actually getting to the polls and voting. the 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 thing is, I wrote an article for the Times. uh, It must have been four five, six years ago, something like that, where I looked into this process of why can't we have digital voting? You can, um, you know, I, I literally, when I bought my house, I signed for it on my mobile phone. Like I never wrote right, me too. Yeah, And you know, and, and that's, it's astounding. You can buy a house on your phone, but you can't vote. And, um, and I think that, uh, that one of the problems is that, um, that the institutions that would be able to allow that to happen, are designed to make sure that doesn't happen because right. it doesn't necessarily benefit certain people. That being said, um, you know, I think that when we, so- when we can see with technology, there's a saying, um, a, a colleague, a former colleague of mine at the Times, Nicole Perlroth, once told me, she's a security reporter, she once told me that there's a saying in, in the security industry that if you're a company, either you've been hacked or you just don't know you've been hacked yet. Um, and the the reality is, is that, you know, Every system is vulnerable. Even the NSA was hacked this last year. Um, and uh, and if we had some sort of voting system, wouldn't Russia just do everything they could, or even China or Iran or North Korea, or whatever, to to somehow break that system? And if that would happen, um, you know, we'd be in big trouble. That being said i don 't think it should be all or nothing. I think maybe there should be ways that you can that we could we could test it. We could say like let's look at local level vote you know in l a last year um I think it was like it was less it was around ten percent of people actually voted in the mayoral race. you know that's terrible we should It should be a hundred percent and and I think that you could start to implement it on lower level um, uh, elections where you know the international community is not affected, and kind of start to see how things play out.
1: Well, it's tricky, right? Because part of our democratic system, as you note, is um, it was designed to be inconvenient, right? I mean, checks and balances were designed to to make it hard to pass bills. There's a reason why we have two chambers and three executive branches. And I imagine if we were all able to to vote remotely without waiting online um, from our phones, where we have you know uh, extraordinary privacy that there'd be a whole new set of um of terrifying sort of hacking uh you know uh, terrorists thrown into you know would you be would you be sent a a Donald Trump ad for instance by a Russian troll farm instantly before you voted to try and to try and influence your opinion um uh, certainly, Google and Facebook would do very well in digital advertising the, the the day of the election. They could probably make up their their entire year at least from um, at least uh, from the, their uh, quotient described to, to Macedonian uh, troll farms. But I have to assume that the only way out of the mess that we're currently in is political activism, and that technology, and particularly mobile technology, is going to play an active role in that. Are, are there other things that you know, maybe you and, and, um, and, and David talked about offline that you think will will help us move towards whatever revolution we are we're headed towards. You know, whether you're pro-Trump or anti-Trump, we are in the middle of, of, of a fairly civilized um, war right now. And I imagine that, that technology will offer us the final solution one way or the other.
0: Well, it's interesting because I think that you you know one of the things that I tend to talk to not just you know I talked to David about as he was as we were setting up the podcasting equipment and was the media world and we you know we, as we got into it in the podcast too but but I tend to talk to a lot of people um about that as as they come here to to record their podcast, whether they're you know legal experts or antitrust experts or whatever it is and And, you know, one of the things, the theories that uh, keeps coming up is that the divide is as a result of technology, both in traditional media where, you know, in news outlets where you know you have like The Wall Street Journal that won't use the word lie I won't even really attack Donald mm. Trump you know there's sporadic stories that come out uh, that they I, you know the journalists I think there push their editors to to publish but for the most part it's a it's a defense system for him and the same thing as with Fox News and you go all the way to the extreme with infowars and i I believe that the same is true on the left you know Rachel Maddower I don't necessarily think is making the world a better place yeah. by just delivering one one side of this viewpoint and and I think that um you know one of the things that 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 David really got to in the show was that that you know that that is contributing and you put that stuff in social media where we're siphoned off even more and it's it you know it's making it's not making the world a better place I'll say that that being said I think that you know we we have this belief that that because it, we are in America and because of our, instit- our institutions and because of the the Constitution, that that will never get to the point where it'll truly break. And, and I think that the one thing, you know, I, I've been realizing more and more that the more guests we have on the show that are, you know, have a political background, an understanding of foreign policy, uh, an understanding of previous administrations, they recognize, how easily it could break. Um, and and I think that, you know, the one thing we do have, as David said, is the ability to vote. And and uh, you know, the Democrats uh need to really push that. They need to you know, the Democrats in my opinion are just floundering and they have no message. Yeah. I agree n- with you. you know, I've no idea who is in charge, what the what they're doing and um uh and yeah they they're, they're just the... as afraid
1: of their base as as Republicans are afraid of their own i mean they're they're just sort yeah. of pussyfooting around issues and and um, I- immigration um uh seems to be the one where there's the the, the largest uh, uh lurch leftward right now but um but th- th- there's a an a, you're absolutely right there's an issue of leadership um and and, yeah. and that's not so bad by the way that, that every now and then there's a void where a new leader must emerge the the, the previous problem they had was that there was an uh, unquestioned leader you know yeah. Yeah. And uh, and the
0: you know the thing that that's definitely clear as a reality is that you know to for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction um in everything. Uh you know there will there there the reaction to the way men treated women for many many years is the me too movement. There will be a reaction to the me too movement. We don't know what it is yeah. yet, but something will come right. of it that that could that could be negative or could be positive whatever and i think that the reaction um uh to to obama was trump and there will be an act, a, re, a reaction to trump and the question is who is that going to be um is it going to be a trump on the left is it going to be someone even more conservative on the right um you know uh um it's it, you know time will tell but 2018 um, as David said, this this coming election is probably going to be one of the most important in history.
1: Well, you know, it's funny. Um, Trump was uh, a reaction to Obama in some ways. I was actually watching the the Obama Letterman special this weekend. And mm-hmm. yep. one, one of the interesting um, points that comes across besides the fact that, you know, how unbelievably nostalgic you are for the time when um, uh, the president of the United States wasn't a, a raving lunatic, Um uh, is that Obama, from the moment he stepped into office, was clearly profoundly aware of the changes that were undergirding the economy. I mean, just globalization multiplied by the rise of technology, which meant the need for fewer jobs, AI, robotics, things we talk about all the time on this podcast, and also the, the decline and uh, diasporaization of, of manufacturing. Um, as he talked about it at some length with Letterman, one thing I wish I, you know, looking backward and re- retrospectively, where all things are are very clear, I wish he'd been more uh, more forthcoming about the long-term effects of those changes. Now he he certainly knew them, and he saw the effects in terms of the, the you know, or he acted on the um, uh, on the effects in terms of how he bailed out the auto industry, uh, the TPP deal. Um, th- there are really a million examples. But where he was less than forthcoming was in how he communicated those changes to the American people, because the economy did recover under Obama. I think the stock market was yeah. at like six thousand or seven thousand when he was elected. He left, and it was like seventeen thousand. Extraordinary recovery, but uh, very. At, at no time can I recall him bluntly telling the American people, "One world has ended and a totally new economy has begun." And I think what Trump mm-hmm. really is a response to is that new economy or, or, or the absence of the previous economy. So because Obama was not forthcoming, w- w- was not totally like, you know, screaming from the rooftops what had happened and the fact that what had happened was, was irreversible, Trump was able to say, this is reversible. We're going we're gonna to mm-hmm. focus on, on coal, you know, which is which he's been heralding yeah. since um, the tax bill passed. He heralded it in you know, the State of the Union speech. We're going to focus on manufacturing jobs. And, and, and manufacturing, of course, is important, but Trump is, is heralding jobs that will never come back in any long-term, sustainable way. So, I, uh, uh, you know, Trump is not just a response to Obama, but in some way, Trump is a response to, to the, the technological shift that, that's changed all of our lives, and perhaps in some small, small way, he's a response to the fact that that change was not f- widely and cogently explained to the American people. Because I think if it had been, yep. people would have been uh, more aware that, that a lot of the, the lines that Trump was trotting out were total, utter bullshit. Yep, completely,
0: completely. And I think um, uh, <clears throat> I think that, that, you know, I didn't make it through the entire um, uh, State of the Union. I tried to kill myself in the middle. Uh It was really sad. It was like seeing him up there and everyone cheering and it was just like, come on, you know he's full of shit. Why are you doing this?
1: Oh, I know. Um, And you want to double time the speed too. Just it was so, um, you know, I think as as, as Tom Frank said, all all the crazy just at half the speed. (laughs) (laughs) Slow, slow, low insanity. Twice as intolerable.
0: That's really funny. I, well, it's, but it was, um, yeah, it was, uh, it, you know, it was really depressing. Um, but the thing is, I think, you know, he touts, he touts all the stuff that he's done for the economy and, uh, and, you know, part of it is part of the, the deregulation and, and so on and so forth. Um, but, uh, but it won't last. Uh, yeah, I don't I believe it will. I don't think anyone believes it will. And, um, and that's when maybe, uh, maybe voters will actually kind of wake up and realize, uh that we have the biggest Charlton we've ever had in history in the White House. Well, let
1: me just ask you this before we get out of here um offline I'm wondering um did uh did David K Johnston provide for you any any other um uh sort of predictions or speculation on on, on when it might end when, when things might stop getting even worse than they really are? <laughs> when um we we talked a little bit about um, after we
0: wrapped up about uh, the you know 2018 election again and and uh, um, and he you know he really truly believes that that's going to be the determining factor of what goes wrong and what goes right in the future and um, you know if if the Democrats can win back the House and the Senate then uh, um, you know by some chance they can they can change the outcome and if they can't then it's just going to be downhill at twice the speed not half the speed
1: stop smiling mike pence
0: yes stop smiling mike pence um all right well thank you so much john uh we will tune in same time uh
1: next week meet you at the same bat time at the same bat place see you man
0: thanks to my guest today david k johnson and of course to my co-guest John Kelly. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a glowing, fantastic 12-star review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work, and thanks most of all to my sponsors, Goop and Freshly. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. I will see you all next week.